Peace be with you. Many of us have seen movies where there's a scene that plays out, and we've seen it in different times, where basically there is uh, some sort of village, and the villagers need to flee, they need to run, they need to scatter because there is an army or whoever, some, some other group who wants to harm the villagers, and they're coming, they're setting everything on fire, and the villagers only have a small, limited amount of time to get out, and so someone, maybe a messenger from the king, maybe a a town representative is like, you know, take only what you need, scatter. We've only got a few minutes, right? And so sometimes it plays out with maybe a house that's on fire. People only have a, a, a minute or two to, to get out of there. And so you want, obviously, living people to be gone uh, out of the house to safety. But what else do you grab, if anything? Only take what is portable. Uh, my family recently, well, some of us were watching uh, the second Lord of the Rings movie, uh, The Two Towers, and uh, Rohan was under attack, and there's this band of evil, disgusting-looking orcs uh, who are coming in and attack the village, and this messenger from the king, flee, we need to flee to the hills from safety, and so this plays out uh, yet again. But it makes us think, what would we take in moments like that? Well, proverbs are things that you can take with you. They are portable. And so when we think about taking certain things with us, we usually think physical things like furniture or that photo album or an extra set of shoes, whatever it happens to be. But invisible things that are in our minds and our hearts are portable and we can take them with us wherever we go in life. And so memories are invisible but portable. We have them with us. Maybe a soccer coach when you were 10 said something encouraging and that has always stuck with you. That's portable and you are taking it with you, not only for your own good, but maybe it is a piece of insight or a wisdom that's going to bless someone else in the future, whatever it happens to be. Andy Stanley, who teaches um, some things about communication theory, says that memorable is portable. If something is memorable, it's portable. You can carry it with you, right? And we know that to be true. We'll enter the Proverbs. The Proverbs are memorable and portable. Small statements of faith to help us live wisely daily. And we can carry them around with us. They're one or two lines. They're short, succinct. Some of them are funny. Some of them are strange. But they're memorable and portable to help us live wisely daily. And our culture loves this. We like short and sweet, and we like to the point. If you can fit it on a bumper sticker, if you can fit it on a T-shirt, if you can fit it in however many characters you need to post something on Twitter, um, Bill Clinton knew this principle when he communicated, the former ex-president. He had the KISS principle, keep it simple, you know, um, because we can remember certain things and carry them with us. So what are they? They're short statements, as I said, to help you live wisely daily. And there's really kind of two main categories of the Proverbs. Some are didactic, meaning they're meant to teach you something. Hey, we're going to teach you. Some are observational about life. And so some are just general, and like these are, okay, life is like this, so you should, be, you should be in the know about this. So didactic or observational. Now, how do they function? And we're going to go into some of the most famous Proverbs here, so this is important. Proverbs are principles that are generally true, not specific promises that are always true. Okay? Let me say that again. They're principles that are generally true, not specific promises that are always true. So they are ideals all things being equal, okay? So let me explain what I mean. So let me take a proverb from the world. This isn't in the Bible. This is just a general statement. It's short. People, you all know it. I'll explain how that's the case for that proverb. Also how this, it's true for a biblical proverb. 
And the reason this is important is because different genres within the Bible function differently. And so a historical narrative, okay, this happened like this, it's explaining what happened. Uh, that's different from apocalyptic, parts of Daniel, the book of Revelation. There's certain interpretive principles. Same thing with Proverbs, they're their own category. So here's a general proverb. Finish it for me. An apple a day keeps... Right, we all know that. What does that mean? Well, the principle is that if you have a good diet you're probably gonna need less medical intervention, maybe less trips to the doctor. Is that generally true? Yes. Is that a specific promise that is always true? No. You can watch your diet, you can eat well, healthy all the time, and some other illness comes into your life that's beyond your control and you need the doctor, right? So in a similar way, Proverbs function like this. So here's an example. So Proverbs 22 verse six, It's a well-known proverb. We're going to deal with this one next uh, Sunday. But it says, Train up a child in the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not depart from it. So is that a principle that's generally true? Yes, it is. Right. So we teach things to our kids. We give an example. We teach them. By the way, we will give them a good example or a bad example. We don't have the privilege of leaving them no example. We are given an example of certain things, whether we like it or not. So there's a good example. And we teach certain things, absolutely. Now, is that going to impact them? Right? Yeah, yeah. A good example is going to help them in a good way, a negative example in negative ways. But is that all there is to the story? No. So it's not a specific promise that is always true. They may grow up, and they're not even in the house anymore, and they come into some you know, group of people who are really negative and bad for them for a variety of reasons, and things could go off the rails. And so it's not a specific promise that is always true, but it is a general principle that is generally true. And so the Proverbs function like this. And so how do we interpret them? First, we need to keep that in mind. And also we need to know that they're always rooted in faith. The fear of the Lord, and we'll get to this shortly, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Revering God, honoring his ways is always the beginning. That's the building block. Okay, that's one thing. Another thing we need to keep in mind is that we need to look at the context. So sometimes the Proverbs stand on their own, and they're disconnected from what goes before and behind. But sometimes they are a part of a larger narrative, and so we need to look at the context. And if we're ever uncertain or unclear about what one of the single Proverbs means, what we do is we look to other parts in the Bible on a similar subject to help us gain clarity about that uncertainty that we might have. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Over the next two weeks, we're going to look at some of the most famous Proverbs. We've looked at some of the most famous Psalms. We're going to have two weeks on the most famous Proverbs, this and next. And next Sunday, what I'm also going to do to help us with context is I'm going to bring in some examples of study Bibles. So a study Bible is different from a normal Bible. A study Bible, and I think every home should have one study Bible, and it's, it's got comprehensive footnotes, it's got cross-references, so you can look up similar passages or quotes, tells you who wrote a book, the background, historical context, all that's really good. I'm a Bible study nerd, I've got a lot of them, I admit it. Uh, I'm going to bring in some of them, and I'm going to display them, there's a bit of a description about them, and how they're different, the strengths and the weaknesses of each one. There's going to be a dedicated podcast to this this week, so I encourage you to look it up. But um, that, that's just going to encourage, that's a tool you can have to help the context be understood if it's unclear, and we'll get into that next week. So who wrote them? Well, mostly King Solomon. His name is attached to many of them. In 1 Kings 4.32, he wrote many songs. Also, we're, we're told that he wrote 3,000 Proverbs. So in his earlier days, he was known as a man of great wisdom. But it's not only him. Some of the Proverbs are anonymous. Some are by Agur. Some are from King Lemuel's mother. 
Uh, so the king's mother is also a, a teacher of some of the Proverbs. And at some point, these different kind of collections of Proverbs are brought together as a part of a single collection. So our process is we're going to go through one by one. We're going to look at 12 Proverbs today, 16 next week, next week, and then there are no particular order of importance, right? I'm just kind of going through the book uh, as we go along. Uh, and there's also this handout. So in your bulletins today, it says, Memorable is Portable. Uh, the most famous Proverbs, part one, and it lists the ones that we're going to look at today. If you're watching from home on the live stream, if you go to the main page and click on this Sunday, this Sunday you go there, there's a PDF download of this, and if you're following on the Westminster Church app, the sermon notes for today are this exact same content, so they're there. So how it works is that I'm going to go through the Proverbs, give it a word or two of explanation, and then there's a line that says principle. What is the main principle here? Okay, we're going to figure what that is, and sometimes it's harder or easier to figure out. Then it says, how can God use this for good? And you can, if you want, fill this in. Now, some of you just want to listen. That's fine. You'll fill it out today. Some of you might want to use this later in the week as a part of your devotional time. It's up to you. But the reason it's important to reflect on how these principles, how God can use them for good, is because if we don't consciously think of this, here's what happens. You know, we, we, we go through the Bible, we see these principles, these ideas, these teachings, and we think, oh, wait a second, here's more stuff to do. And we forget the character of God. God loves us and wants the best for us and bless. This is for our good. And so we live out these principles in our lives. It's a blessing not only to us, but for the people around us. So we just need to consciously reflect on how is this principle good for me and for the people around me? Okay, so we're going to jump in and we're going to go through them one by one. Proverbs 3, verses 3 and 4. This is the 12th one we're going to count down. It says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, I haven't put it up there, but the next verse says, uh, This will help you win favor with God and with people. So, when it talks about if you live by this steadfast love and faithfulness, you will win favor with God, it doesn't mean that you earn anything or anything like that. It's really about living in a way that is pleasing to him, but also winning favor with people around you. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, clearly it's prioritizing two things. Steadfast love and faithfulness, or steadfast love and loyalty. Now, notice the language. It says, bind them around your neck. Okay, so that's like supposed to be like a necklace or a chain. Okay, write them on the tablet of your heart. And today we might say, tattoo this invisibly on your heart. Right? Ouch. It's metaphorical language, not literal here. Okay, so but what's the purpose of that? If you've got a chain that you always wear around your neck or something is written on your heart, that means that it's always with you. There's never a time when you're not living by steadfast love. There's never a time where you're not living by faithfulness. So this is a way of saying these principles should always be with you. You should internalize them. And so the main thrust here, the principle is that we are to internalize steadfast love and faithfulness as governing principles in our lives, okay? Uh, in England, there was a story about a, a girl. There had been a storm, and so she was out playing in the puddle. She had her raincoat, her rubber boots on. She was with her father, and there was a round puddle at the side of the road, and she jumped into it, disappeared. Well, what had happened is there was so much rain and downfall in the storm that the storm grate popped off, and it was somewhere else. And so what looked like a round puddle was actually you know, going down, like a manhole cover. It was going down into the sewer. And so the father just, oh my goodness. Now, he knows that the sewer system en empties at the end of the street into the river. And so he runs there, and he sees his daughter come out floating in a star shape. Now, what in the world? 
She was told in swimming lessons, if you ever are in the water and you get in trouble and you don't know what to do, do the star float. Do this. She'd internalized that principle that when she was in trouble, that's automatically what she did. Do the star float. Her dad jumped in and grabbed her and she was okay. We are to internalize steadfast love and faithfulness and this will be a blessing to the people around us. Imagine a world where people live by steadfast love and faithfulness. It is internalized within them. Imagine you at your own funeral and people talking to one another in conversations over those little small funeral-sized sandwiches. I love those, especially the ones with... Anyway. Um, and the things that people are saying about you is... They're saying words like steadfast love. They're so faithful, so true. Number 11, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Again, probably Solomon. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him. Some translations say acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So when we're going through the most famous Psalms, I said that of the most famous Psalms, Psalm 23 was the most famous of them. Well, this is most likely the most famous proverb of the most famous proverbs. It is underlined in many Bibles. Many of you have shared with me that this is important. So to, to demonstrate this, what I'd like to do, I'm going to get a volunteer to come up here. I'm going to get a big pole, and you're going to lean on a 45-degree angle on the pole, and then I'm going to kick the pole out from under you, and we're going to find out what happens. <laughs> Who wants to volunteer? Gee does. But of course, I'm not going to do that. But the idea is that when you look at the language in these Proverbs, just slow down, look at them. Here's, here's what it's saying. If you're just relying, leaning on your own understanding, you're going to fall on your face. That's the idea. Here's what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you're never to use your mind or your brain or your reason or your thinking. Right? Jesus says, math, sorry, Mark chapter 12, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The idea here is that if you only rely on your own insights, which happen to be detached from God, then you're going to fall on your face. Trust in the Lord all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Submit to him, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Now, that's interesting. We do that, something will happen. Your paths will be made straight. This is biblical language. Staying on the path, staying on the way. This is synonymous with making good moral choices, uh, with being faithful, with, with, with walking in a way that's true, honest, holy, and good. And so if we're not on that way, we're in the ditch, and we're unclear even about what the right road is. And so we honestly need to ask ourselves, if I am never clear about what the path is, if I am never clear about what God's teachings isn't something. If I am never clear about this or that, if I'm always confused or if I'm always making wrong decisions, you really need to ask yourself, am I trusting my own wisdom more than the teachings of God? And so the fundamental principle here is trust in God. But more than that, just because you are uncertain about your future, that does not mean that God is uncertain about your future. Listen to him. He, he shapes the path ahead, Right? So, how can God use this for good? Well, cooperating with him and his, his teachings results in a better future. Next, number 10, Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. There's a lot in chapter 3. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now, this is about a couple of things. One of them is discipline. And we just need to acknowledge that 
there's a lot of confusion about discipline. People have also had bad experiences with discipline. We think of physical discipline um, that, is, that has been carried out in a way that is excessive, that is unloving. Um, I don't know if this was like this for you in public school, but when I was in elementary school, um, and this wasn't too long ago, I'm getting older, but I'm not that old. Anyway, we would have the strap. You, you did something right, you got the strap across your hands. Like, they don't do that anymore, uh, which is good. But we often think of physical discipline when we see passages like this, but I like to broaden our minds as to what is meant by discipline, okay? So when a child makes a bad decision or a hurtful decision, there is a consequence. Maybe they can't watch TV for a week, whatever it happens to be. That is, that's a form of discipline. When we want to improve at something, we discipline ourselves. So let's say I want to get better as a runner. I'm going to train. I'm going to eat a certain way. I'm going to practice running. I'm exercising discipline in my life or self-discipline for a greater good. And I think that's what we need to think about here. So discipline is encouraging a change in behavior through difficulty in teaching. It's encouraging a change in behavior, sometimes in yourself, through difficulty and teaching. And so the principle here is that God's discipline is actually loving. Now, I'm not saying that all hardship is discipline. I am not saying that. But we need to do some discernment. Are there certain things in our life that we go through, and this might actually be the loving discipline of God. If I never, think of it from a human perspective, if I never discipline my kids, that doesn't mean I love them. It's actually a lack of care if I never actually discipline. I'm not talking physically, I'm just talking discipline, consequence. There's difficulty and there's teaching because I want you to be stronger, I want you to be wiser, I want you to deal with life in a way in which you feel equipped. And so the principle is God's discipline is an act of love. And so how can God use this for good? I think God, through discipline, and again, we have to do discernment, what is discipline, what is just hardship. How is God preparing me for something greater? How is God equipping me, right? So how many of us can look back at some difficult experience in our life, and I'm not saying it's good, but we've gone through it and we've said, you know what, because of that, as hard as it was, I'm stronger. Because of that, I'm wiser. Because of that, I'm able to, to help or, or exist or cope with something that I would not have been able to do before. Down to number nine, Proverbs 3, verses 3 and 4. Next slide. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Now, uh, this to some of you think, this is a famous proverb that doesn't sound very familiar with, to me. But actually, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, this is actually quoted twice in the New Testament, and here is that slightly different version. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is where this comes from. So have you ever had someone in your life who, who is opposing you? It's horrible. Someone who's opposing you, maybe someone you know, care about, maybe someone at work, whatever it happens to be, they're opposing you. This teaches us that God opposes people who are scornful and who are proud and who are arrogant. God opposes them. But to the humble, he gives favor and grace. So which side of the equation do we want to be on? The scornful, proud side or the humble, meek side? Now the word humility has its origin in humus, which means soil or earth. Soil, earth. To be humble means being down to earth. It means being unpretentious and honest about who you are for the benefit of others. And so, the principle is humility. 
be humble, receive the favor of God. And how can God use this for good? Now, this is good to think out because what difference does it make? Someone who is humble is teachable. People who are proud and who are arrogant, who are selfish, who are full of themselves, they're not teachable. They're just going to do what they want. But someone who is humble is able to yield. Right? Okay, God, that, that's your will. That's your teaching. I'm going to receive that because you know better than me. And if someone's willing to yield, God will use that person to bless others to a greater degree than someone who just wants to do it their own way. So it has to do with being receptive, being teachable, and blessing other people. All right, number eight, Proverbs 4, verses 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, this is one of my memory verses, and it's, um, I actually memorized it in the NIV translation, which says, above all else, guard your heart. Guard, for everything you do flows from it. So, now what are we talking about heart, guarding your heart? This is a muscle, but we know that when the Bible talks about heart, it's speaking about more than just a heart, right? As Dane Ortland describes, sorry, Ray Ortland describes in his book, Gentle and Lowly, the heart in biblical terms is not a part of who we are, but the center of who we are. It's not a part of who we are, it's the center of who we are. So your mental, emotional, spiritual center determines the direction and flow and influence of your life. So if you let something bad into the secret places of your heart, which is your center, there will be negative consequences. Something good, there'll be positive consequences. One example, the greatest sexual issue and sin in the entire globe right now is the rapid and powerful rise of pornography. Number one issue, far and away. Um, and it's so easily accessible, it is horrific, it's a growing industry, it's a problem outside the church, inside the church, it, it changes psychologically how we function, how we, uh, how we interact with people, how we see people, uh, it, it hosts up an industry which is growing, which is multi-billion dollar, which is violent. It just, it wreaks havoc in relationships. It is, it is the number one sexual sin on planet Earth right now. And so if we, if, we, if we cultivate that practice in the deep secret places of our hearts, it will psychologically and physically change us. How we see relationships, how we function in the world, our health in general. But in contrast, let's say that we are seeking proactively to cultivate prayer under God in holiness. God, who are you? What is your will? How can I serve you? And you're praying for people. You're trying to live out what Paul says, pray in all circumstances. And you're seeking God's will. Not to say that you're perfect because no one is. But if you're cultivating that, that will also have an impact. And so this verse is a very powerful reminder. Just because something is in secret doesn't mean it doesn't have influence Keep your heart, guard your heart with all vigilance above all else, for from it flow the springs of life. So the principle is guard your mental, emotional, spiritual center. Guard it. That's army language, army language, war. How can God use it for good? A godly center will help the direction of your life and the influence of your life to be good. Number seven, Proverbs 6, 6. One of my personal favorites, because I think it's kind of funny. Um, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Okay, so to understand this proverb, uh, we need to know something about ants and why they're being held up and, uh, as, a, as something to be emulated. Well, ants, we don't realize this, but ants quite often have different functions in an ant colony. 
Um, they work very hard. Uh, some ants can carry 10 to 50 times their own weight. Okay. Now, what are we supposed to emulate about the ant? Well, given that the ant stands in contrast to the sluggard, uh, I think it's a general principle about hard work. Okay. So not only when you work hard, now this doesn't mean only work, we are to rest and we neglect this as Christians, we need to rest, but also when we're doing something, we want to be diligent, we want to work hard, we want to give it our best, we want to be practical, useful, helpful, absolutely. Not only does that clearly help the people around us, but it actually feels good when we are useful insofar as we are able. Uh, one of the famous movies, uh, Chariots of Fire, um, Eric Little describes his passion for running, and this is what he says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. God made me fast, when I run, I feel his pleasure. I love that. And so the principle here is, it's wise to work hard, but at the same time, not only does our hard work bless others, but when we do so, we feel God's pleasure. And I would argue that. When, we, when, you, when you work hard through the day insofar as you are able, and you, uh, you, you help someone, you contribute, you give it your best, and you put your head in the pillow, you're tired. But guess what? You also say, you know what? Oh, I feel God's pleasure because God used me today as a blessing. Okay, next, number six, Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, this is really important. It's seminal to the Proverbs and the Psalms. It comes up multiple times in the Bible, and you've probably heard it before. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So first, we need to know what is meant by fear. And we always need to uh, highlight this when we come across this text. Fear of the Lord doesn't mean shaking in your boots fear, although sometimes it can be. The idea here, and I think I love how Billy Graham said it, uh, it's standing before God in reverential awe, reverential awe before God. That's really what it means to fear the Lord. So that's the beginning of wisdom. In other words, if you want to be wise, if you want to have insight and knowledge in your life, it has to be based on the foundation of fearing God and seeking to do His will. So that's foundational. And so if you don't have that, you might feel wise or insightful at some times, but it's, it's, it's always going to be partial. It's always going to break down. So think of like an uh, engineer, someone who... like a engineer who builds bridges. You need to know certain mathematical formulas, forces, energy, materials, soil, all these different things if that bridge is going to be successful and work together. If you don't have that, it might look good for a little while, but it's going to fall down and people are going to get hurt. Right? It's the same thing in this case. The fear of the Lord. So, so revering God needs to be that, that foundational building block upon which all other knowledge and wisdom is built or else the whole thing falls apart. W. Somerset Mom said, if 50 million people say something foolish, it's still foolish. If 50 million people say something foolish, it's still foolish. Well, how do we know if it's foolish or not? Well, is it built on the Word of God? That's, so we don't have that? You're just going to go along with the 50 million. People say, oh, you get into a certain peer group with your friends, and if they all jumped off a bridge, would you? No. You're more likely to if they all do it. So impressionable are we as people. So the principle is fear God if you want to be wise. How can God use it for good? Wisdom enriches life for you and others. Wisdom enriches life for you and others. How does God's work be done in the world? How is God's kingdom done in the world? Well, he does it through the power of his spirit. He cooperates. He invites us to cooperate with him on earth as it is in heaven. 
Wisdom needs to be that building block. All right, number five. Proverbs 11, verse 25. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. Now, I love this. It's a lesser-known proverb, but you do actually see it quoted a fair amount of times in books. So it's not one that a lot of people have memorized, but it does come up in print a fair amount. So we need to ask what enriches us. And when we hear that word enrichment, we quite often think, firstly, of money, right? Uh, How many of us have seen these studies? I saw one recently from Harvard that came out. They studied people who won lotteries. How They were happy initially, but it quickly fizzles after a couple months. And for many people, they have more headaches, more trauma, more problems in their life after than they had from before. And of course, it's a reminder that money can't buy happiness. Well, what enriches us? Well, giving. When we give and we bless, we actually receive something. It makes us feel good. Economist Richard Layward writes, people who care about others are happier than those who are preoccupied with themselves. And we know it. We know it, right? The principle is blessing others blesses you too. Blessing others blesses you too. You feel good. Again, you do something in the day, maybe a friend calls you up, they need you, they're going through a hard time, you show up for them. You're a shoulder to cry on. You maybe give them some advice, some help, as partial as it is, but you put your head on the pillow that night and you have a clear conscience because I did my best to help someone. Oh, and I'm tired, but it feels good. All right, next. Proverbs 11, verse 29. Fourth last one. This comes from the pen of Solomon. Whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind. And the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. Now, the picture there, for those of you who are watching or here in person, is a scene from the famous movie from 1960 called Inherit the Wind, right? Who's seen Inherit the Wind? It's a classic. Some of you, okay. You should see it. It's Spencer Tracy. It's a great one. It's about the 1925 Scopes monkey trial when the young teacher starts to teach evolution in schools. Whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind. So that's where the movie got the title from. And the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. Now, this is one of those psalms where knowing the context helps. So the author is Solomon, okay? So he's wise at this point. Um, I think this is very practical advice to his own kids, okay? Whoever troubles his own household, kids will inherit the wind, meaning nothing. So think of an inheritance. Uh, Money, the car, well, not in Solomon's time, but um, grandma's pearl earrings, whatever it happens to be, a house. You would rather inherit that than the wind, which means nothing. You can't grasp it. And the fool, so the fool who troubles their house will be servant, and I think here this is indentured servanthood, will be servant to the wise of heart. Because you have not had an inheritance and because you have stirred up trouble in your house, it means that you're not going to get the inheritance. You're not going to be able to live your life. You're going to be on the streets. You're going to have to sell yourself into servanthood or a job that you don't want to put food on your back and food in the fridge. Sorry, clothes on your back and food in the fridge. And so I think this is one of those examples where it's a very practical piece of wisdom for families, right? So the principle is children should respect parents and family. That's part of the principle here. How can God use this for good? Well, I think it helps with strong, cooperative homes for the future, but also very practically for adult children who grow up and come across this proverb. My own future might be better if I actually do honor my parents. Almost a bit self-serving here, but the principle still holds. It's an observation about life. Number three, third last one, Proverbs 11, sorry, Proverbs 12, verse 25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Now, I think this is something that is self-evidently true. 
Now, when we hear the word anxiety today, sometimes we think anxiety, there's lots of kinds of diagnosed anxiety, uh, something a psychologist might say. Um, I'm not saying this is not true in this situation for that, but I think here the word more, uh, is more specifically connected to just general worry. This is general, this is excessive worry that you have in your life. And those people who have gone through chapters, when they have excessive worry, we know it. You feel heavy, you feel weighed down. It could be sunny, but it feels cloudy, and you feel like there's a weight, it's harder to move around, you're tired all the time. And so the idea here is that words help. A good word makes someone glad. And so I think the principle here, it's very simple, very practical. Use good words to combat worry. Use good words to combat the worry and the excessive worries that people have. How can God use this for good? People need encouragement. Have you noticed? People need encouragement quite often more than we know, and we wonder, what can I do? And maybe there's a limited amount of things you can do, but you can give them a good word. You can encourage them, and it helps them. Number two, second last one, Proverbs 13, verse 20. Walk with the wise and become wise. For a companion of fools suffers harm. Now, the Apostle Paul reiterates this in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Bad company corrupts good character, right? And so this is about peer groups. Peer groups rub off. Good peer groups rub off. Negative peer groups rub off. Both are true, okay? Now, walk with the wise and become wise. That's good. For a companion of fools suffers harm. And you think, okay, i got to eliminate any contact with fools in my life. Probably impossible. You're going to have a fool in your, in your family, in your friends, at church, at school, at work. There's going to be some... That's not, what's, what's envisioned here is the people that you proactively spend social time with, you're seeking them out. If those people are wise and good and godly, that will have an impact on you. If they're not, that will have an impact on you. I was watching this movie with the family, A Bug's Life. It's a cartoon, and the person in the front, kind of the, the, the bug in the front kind of goes on the wrong path, and all the other bugs just follow along, and they go over this cliff. And so who are we following? Who are we leading? God first, primarily? Absolutely. But other people do have an influence on us. Now, there's also a word of warning in this. This is good about context. So, so Solomon puts this proverb together. Here's what we read in 1 Kings 11. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Malek, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Solomon doesn't take his own advice in the closing days of his life. Disaster. Walk with the wise and become wise. The principle, be careful about the company you keep. How can God use this for good? Well, we all need help in life. We all need help to make decisions. We all need direction and guidance. We, we have family or friends or coworkers or whoever it happens to be to help us with that. If our social circles are the wrong social circles, it will negatively impact our decisions, our directions. Then finally... Number one, Proverbs 14, verse 30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy rots the bones. Oh, yes. A tranquil heart, some translations will say a peaceful heart. Judd Wilhite says, comparison is the key to discontentment. Comparison is the key to discontentment. So this is really fundamentally about envy and about peace. 
And so if we are constantly comparing ourselves to other people, if we are envious, there's some sort of rotting effect that this has in our lives. Okay? So one of, the, one of the reasons why people like myself and others are so concerned about um, the rise in, in, in really heavy social media use, especially among young people, is because excessive social media use, it's all about comparison. What are other people doing? What are they saying? And what are they not saying? It increases anxiety and depression, especially in young people. It's a game of constant comparison, and it rots us. But a peaceful heart gives life to the flesh, gives life to the body. So what is that peace rooted in? Well, if we are in Christ, we already have what matters most in life. Eternity, heaven, the promises, the covenant promises of God. So if I am firmly rooted in that, is there other stuff I'd like? Sure. Is there other stuff I need? Maybe. But I've got what matters most. So if I know that, if I'm confident in that, I'm going to see my neighbor and he's got some fancy house and some fancy car and some fancy boat. I'm be like, okay, but you know what? I have a house waiting for me in heaven not made with human hands, made by God himself. One day, I'm going to be in the throne room of God Almighty. Who cares what my car looks like? A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. Martin Thielen asked a boy one time, said, draw, draw a picture of a perfect life. Boy starts doodling. After a little bit of time, he shows Thielen the picture. It had uh, his house, uh, some friends, and his church. And the boy said, I don't have to imagine, I already have it. The principle, be content, be healthy. Be content, it will increase your health. How can God use this for good? When we trust in a God who provides, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, it will increase health and happiness in our life. Not always, but often. Closing word this morning, Tim Peters, he wrote a book about the Carthusian order and he said this, Spirituality comes from above, but is always lived from below. I like that. I like that because the Proverbs are very practical. They're down to earth. Spirituality comes from above, but is always lived from below. So the Proverbs help us do that. So down to earth, humble. Is there anything today that you've come across that you think, you know what, I'm doing well on that? And this is a word of encouragement to you. Great job. Just continue on that path. Maybe there's something you've, you've come across. You think, you know what, um, Maybe not so much. Maybe I need to turn my attention to some of that. We may not be fleeing filthy orcs in the land of Rohan. Our house may not be on fire, but we need to have with us wisdom from God to live wisely daily. Memorable is portable. Next week we have part two. Amen.